Welcome to Count Me In with Della and Deanna. Today we feature a delightful conversation with Lloyd Douglas, a mathematician who spent the vast majority of his career outside of academics. Lloyd grew up in Brooklyn, New York, where he attended a high school focused on engineering that had, as you will learn in the conversation, a really distinctive mascot. He earned his undergraduate degree at the City University of New York and his master's degree at Miami University in Ohio. Lloyd took his first job with the Navy, where he worked on simulation and computer programming for submarines and torpedoes. Eventually, he found his way to the National Science Foundation, where, among other positions, he served as a program officer and supported many programs that went on to make a difference in the lives of students, including various REUs, the Carleton Summer Math Program, and the EDGE Program. This conversation with Lloyd highlights excellence as a foundation for success in life, the importance of a teacher recognizing and identifying talent in a student, and an interesting perspective on organization. So please join us as we talk with Lloyd. Lloyd, it's so nice of you to join us today. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. My pleasure to be here. And we like to start with you telling us your story. That means telling us from when you were little Lloyd and coming forward. So I'm not sure there was ever a little Lloyd because I was born at 21 inches. Um, my mother tells me so. Um, but before that, I guess I was smaller. It was a little Lloyd before that. Um, so I guess we'll start at the beginning. Um, I'm the youngest of my mother's four children, girl, boy, girl, boy. And the first two children had the same father and the second two of us had a different father. Um, both of my parents immigrated to the U.S. from Jamaica. Um, they knew each other growing up, but they weren't involved. They, they separately came to the U.S. and ironically, it was in the same year. Um, they both came to New York because they were, they, um, were sponsored by people in, in their family that lived in New York. Mm-hmm. And they met, that's where they met sort of again. And um, three years later, they got married. And two years after that, my sister was born. And then the year after that, I was born. And my sister and I were both born in Manhattan. A uh, year after I was born, we moved to Brooklyn, New York. And that's where I grew up. I went to elementary school, junior high school high schools in Brooklyn, and I went to college in Manhattan. Tell us a little more about your childhood, what it was like to be in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, were your parents uh, supportive of education? Did they did they want you to get a good education? Um, what was that like? Yeah, it was sort of interesting because my, um, my father was really big on education. Um, you know, we get, maybe you take it for granted, but we get here in this country, but in in Jamaica, you only got six years of free education, and at most, mm-hmm. you might get less than that. So my father has a sixth grade education. My mother has a fourth grade education. And my father was really big on education because he didn't get the opportunity, and he wanted his children to get the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And he sort of pushed us, but I, somehow I think he pushed us a little bit too much. Like we would have done it anyway, you know, because mm-hmm. the way my sister and I were, like, all right, leave us alone. You know? <laughs> but, it, but it was sort of micromanaging um, sort of to the extent where he wanted to live his life through me and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wanted to live my own life. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so there was a sort of a tension there. Um, he wanted to meet me to be an engineer because that's what he would have been. And I didn't know what an engineer was. And um, I actually went to an, my high school was, I went to actually an engineering high school. Um, mm-hmm. And um, you know how high school have mascots um, well, ours was an engineer. I mean, it really was. <laughs> it really was an engineer. Right? So, 
So, so I'm really glad that I went to that school because first of all, it was a great school. Second of all, the thing I learned the most is that I didn't want to be an engineer. Right? So mm-hmm. otherwise I might've gone to college and majored in engineering and then decided I didn't really want to do that. So, um, mm-hmm. so learning things early, even if they're somewhat, they seem somewhat negative, I think it is a good idea. Yeah. So, um, how did that sit with your father that you didn't want to be an engineer? Not, not well. Oh, oh, so I didn't even tell him when I was in college what my major was. He uh-huh. didn't find out at, until my graduation. He was at my graduation because <laughs> I didn't want to tell him. <laughs> in fact, he says, "I thought you were getting an engineering." Oh, I never said that. You know, said that. <laughs> that was after my graduation. He goes, "Well, where, you were after the engineers." I go, "No, I was not because I didn't get an engineering." <laughs> so yeah, that was that was that lasted a long time, and then we finally sort of reconciled that it was okay that you know I wasn't an engineer. Before you left Brooklyn, though. Because mm-hmm. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, you know, where I rode my bike around the block and someone who grew up in Brooklyn would have just been, did, we would have just loved that. So what was it like? Did you ride bikes? Did you, what did you all do in Brooklyn as little boys and girls? So we did, um, I rode a bike, but I rode a bike late. Um, I drive cars, but I drove cars late. <laughs> so those are the things that you, you sort of don't do. Um, we did a lot of stuff outside because, you know, I've always wondered what people who grew up in small towns did because there are lots of people. There are always people to mm-hmm. do stuff with, right, mm-hmm. that were outside of your family, right? So you could always find a game of something to be played or people doing something. Um, so we played, you know, uh, stickball and punch ball and, you know, all these variations of baseball, which I've never played, by the way. I've never played baseball. I played a lot mm-hmm. of softball. I play a lot of other kind of balls, but um, but never baseball, even though I'm a big baseball fan. And so those are the kind of things you did. Um, you weren't really allowed to go off of your block, hmm. right? So because who knows what could happen if you left the block, you know? So, <laughs> so but, you know, you kind of sometimes you would sneak off the block, but, you know, you couldn't find out. You, know, mm-hmm. you could like, find out if you... But somebody would tell them and they saw you around the corner or something. It's not a good, not a good thing. Not a good. <laughs> so and then when you were studying, you didn't study engineering, but did you study math as an undergrad? Yes, I was a math major. Math major, okay. As an undergrad, yeah. Secretly. <laughs> Secretly. I always like to ask people about um, in their childhood, who helped you? Who who were the helpers in your neighborhood? Who maybe uh, inspired you to study math or helped you become a better person or uh, helped you to grow into the Lloyd you are today? Uh, so that's really tricky. Um, as I said, I majored in math, but that was not an easy choice for me. I... Um, I did narrow it down to four things, right? And so, um, you know, the, you know, having sort of being a first generation college student, the whole concept of a major was alien to me. And I'm like, well, you mean you got have to pick one thing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have lots of interests, right? So, I, but I narrowed it down to four, which were, and they were um, chemistry, uh, German, math, and physics. Mm-hmm. So, and that those were the four. And so as an undergrad, I took courses in four of those majors that, that the majors would take. 
So to, to try not to limit my options. So, but at some point, you know, I had to sort of make a decision. And so then, mm -hmm. but it wasn't an easy decision. Um, so um, sort of the help I got was, um, I had this, I had advanced calculus teacher. Um, all right, so, so, so this is sort of my math story. When um, in 10th grade, in New York City in 10th grade, the first half of 10th grade was um, plane geometry. Mm -hmm. And you had to do proofs. This was a term I had proofs. And I said, you know, this isn't math. This is <laughs> proofs. What's this? What's the proof stuff? And, um, and why do I have to prove stuff that people already know? You know, it didn't make any sense right. to me. <laughs> so that was the first half of, um, that was 10th grade. Go, oh, this is horrible. I can't do, you know, and then, this, then the second half of uh, 10th grade was you actually applied the geometry. Right? You did mm -hmm. Right, and so you didn't prove theorem, but you actually used the geometry. And I said, "Oh, we're back, back to real math. Ooh, I'm lucky. I'll never see that proof stuff again." Right? <laughs> wrong, 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 wrong. So, so when I got to um, the college, I took calculus, and then I took advanced calculus, and there's this proof stuff again. I go like, "Oh, this is horrible. You know, this is horrible stuff." I, you know, I thought this was. Um, I thought that was uh, uh, that first half of tenth grade was an anomaly. <laughs> now I find out this is like the rest of the stuff is like this. And so I, I had a particular advanced calculus class test that I bombed on. And I said, you know, this is sort of the end of my career. And um, at least in math, I still have these other three options. Um, but my advanced calculus teacher came up to me after the exam um, that I bombed on and said, and she encouraged me. She said, uh, she said that she saw something in me that, um, she thought was very positive. I have mm -hmm. no idea what that was. <laughs> I wanted—I wasn't going to ask. You know, I wanted to know, but I wasn't going to ask. So, so I sort of—I think if she hadn't said that, you know, I would have just sort of, sort of run away and switched to something else. But um, so I think that was for me in math. That was the big thing uh, at the at the time at the right time, um, having that encouragement. Mm -hmm. And how did you end up choosing college or going to college? Oh, good question. So um, I don't, you know, to me, college was college. I didn't know there's a difference between colleges. Um, maybe there's not. I mean, maybe there is, but but I figured you go to college, you learn stuff, right? That's it's that's, that's actually a true statement, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but um, so you know, I told you I grew up in Brooklyn, and so I figured out, you know, I'd go to college in Brooklyn, and I had a high school advisor who said to me um, that you should probably apply to go to the City College of New York, which is where I want to graduate. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, you should do that. And I said, okay, you know, what do I know? I'm a little kid. Um, so I did. And, and, um, and, so, and I got in and I just decided to go there. Um, but back to the question about how I chose college, colleges, um, New York State at the time, I think they still do have this competitive um, exam for a region scholarship, and um, which I was fortunate enough to win. And if you win it, you can only use it in the state of New York. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of for me was, well, I only applied to schools in the state of New York because, you know, I get the scholarship, so I might as well use it. And so, um, so I went to, that's why I ended up going to City College. And that 
decision changed so much in my life that I can't even, you know, we'd be here all day talking about the, the, the impact that that decision um, had in my life for, you know, professionally, personally, all, all kinds of reasons. It was. Tell us something. Moving... I was going to okay. say. Tell us okay. So, the... so there's a, um, a student, a friend of mine who um, is, is the only person who I went to junior high school, high school and college. Right? He's the only person. He unfortunately he's deceased now, but he but he's the only person. And so our freshman year, we're in college, and um, he says to me, "Slow, you know, I have these tickets to uh, go to a New York Rangers hockey game, Madison Square Garden. And do you want to go? I have an extra ticket." And I said. Sure. Why not? I don't know anything about hockey. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to go. And it was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, this, this literally completely changed my life because I became an incredible hockey fan after that. And, um, and I still play today. And so that's, that's sort of, and sort of hockey in some cases, maybe outside of people define me as I, you know, by my hockey. <laughs> and that never would have happened if, you know, if I hadn't met, you know, if Jack and I hadn't been in the same place at the same time, we wouldn't have been in the same place at the same time if I didn't go to that school and if mm-hmm. I hadn't been advised to go to the school. So so the ripple effect of that was, um, mm-hmm. was sort of a... And professionally? So that was your personal ramp, ripple effect? Just well, th- well, if I hadn't... Um, so the story I told about the advanced calculus, I wouldn't have been in that class even, right? So I might not have even had that same experience. I had that... Definitely wouldn't have had that same faculty member. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe someone else would have saw my horrible cal- advanced calculus exams and then you need to go do something else with your life. Right? So, <laughs> who knows? so mm-hmm. what was it that um, that helped you make the decision to be a math major in college? Ooh, um, let's see. Did I have a four-sided coin? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, so one of the things that attracted me to math was it's so, you know, we say this, but I think it's really true that math is, has applications to almost everything, right? So um, I figured, well, that sounds like a better option because that, that doesn't knock me out of doing other things. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I chose something else, it might. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that wasn't the only factor, but that was that was a major factor, you know, it, you know, and it solves problems, which I think is a good thing. And it solves mm-hmm. problems, not just math problems, it solves other problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I talk to students about, you know, the in the quadratic quadratic equations, when you, when you try to solve a quadratic equation, you know, there's the formula, the quadratic formula, there's this thing, the thing under the square root sign is called the, right, the discriminant. Mm-hmm. All right. And I said, you know, what does the discriminant tell you? It tells you how many real solutions there are. Right. And mm-hmm. I said, wouldn't it be great in life if you had something that could tell you how many real, you know, problem, <laughs> how many real solutions there are? Because if the answer is zero, don't look for one. <laughs> That's such a great. So you went from there to grad school. Tell us about that yep. transition. Um, another, another very hard story. My, my math story is, is is sort of yeah, that's a bizarre story. That was that was a really hard it's a really hard transition. It was really hard because as an undergraduate, I took a lot of amazingly enough analysis related things. Even after my advanced calculus experience, I took um, 
I took complex variables. I took functional analysis. I took, um, you know, stuff like that. So I had, I had on paper, at least a really strong um, analysis background and not much of anything else. It takes some number three, but not much of anything else. So when I go to, go to grad school, I had to take Algebra, I had to take analysis, and I had to take something else. And so I took algebra, I took analysis, and I took um, statistics, which made me um, sort of the scourge of both. So in, in our program, you either got a, a math degree or a statistics degree. Mm-hmm. Oh. And by choosing statistics, I was a traitor to the math people and an interloper to the, the statisticians. <laughs> um, but the... the the story was I had never taken any algebra and I never had taken any uh, statistics, but it was the real analysis that I bombed on. Oh, I, I, and 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 I did really well in statistics and really well in algebra, and which sort of baffled the, the faculty. And they said, you know, we really, in fact, what what brought it to to my advisor's attention was that I guess the the the, the professor was my. Uh, Analysis classroom knew that I wasn't really doing that well. He would talk to my advisor. He goes, well, wow, he has a really strong analysis background. If he's bombing out analysis, I don't know what he's doing in his other classes. And then he talked to my other professor, and they said, well, he's doing really well in his other classes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, it makes no sense at all, but, you know, that's me, right? So, um, so then I had to actually drop my analysis class mm-hmm. and had to sort of go back and take sort of I don't know, they call it baby analysis. And while I was taking these other classes. So so it was a struggle. It was a struggle. Um, and I survived, but you know. Where were you at this time? This was at Miami University. Mm-hmm. The only one, and it's not in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> um were there many uh, black people in your classes? Um no. No. Um there were actually two other black students in my master's degree program. Um, and then as an undergrad, no, there weren't many at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was that ever a problem issue for you or no? No, no, mm-hmm. no. So you must have finished your master's though, because when you were telling us your quick bio at the beginning, you earned a master's and then you moved yeah. on from there. So so I went from a school that had a quarter system to a school that had a semester system, which means I got out really late um, from one place and started really early in the second place. That was too quick. I mean, I should have done something. Else. I mean, I, I did work that summer, but it was too short of a period of time um, between those two experiences for me. Um, so, yeah, that was another tough transition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you found your way to the Navy. Tell us about that. Yeah, so 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 when I was at I was at Boston University in a PhD program, and I decided somewhere during that year that I didn't really want to do this anymore. You know, I didn't this this isn't working out. So I decided to look for a job. Well, the problem was, you know, I had a lot of education and not a lot of work experience. Obviously, mm-hmm. so it was really hard for me to find a job. So I stayed in school while I was looking, and I stayed in. Um, long enough to finish all of my coursework for PhD and one qualifying exam. And, um, and I was thinking, oh, this is horrible. Like, I'm, so I'm, I'm in school because I can't have nothing else to do. <laughs> so, and then nobody wants to hire me. And so I got this job working for the Navy. Um, 
I mean, I was applying for to anything, right? And when I got this job at the Navy, it was as the Naval Underwater Systems Center. I had no idea what modified what in that, you know, in that <laughs> phrase. Right? I mean, I knew it was naval. I didn't know if it was a system center that was underwater or if it was a center for underwater systems. And I didn't care because somebody decided they wanted to hire me. And, and the interesting was it was a temporary not to exceed one year appointment. That was the deal. Mm-hmm. I, I'll take it. You know, I'll take it. And I sort of call it this Gilligan's Island syndrome because, you know, you know, 30 years later, I'm still working. I was still working for the federal government you know, after this you know, temporary not to exceed one year. Not at the same place, but... Uh, uh-huh. But yeah, it's um. So, what was your job at the naval underwater systems? Oh, so I did find out. By the way, it is a, it is, underwater system. So submarines, torpedoes. Is mm-hmm. it. And so I was hired as a mathematician, and um, I pretty much did computer programming, um, mm-hmm. for databases for torpedoes and um. And submarines, and then that was my that was that temporary job, and then later I stayed on as a computer specialist working in simulation, um, target environment generators, and, and simulations of sonar and fire control systems. So that's what I did there. And then late, right after that, also in the Navy in Newport, I worked at the um, um, on the Trident submarine program mm-hmm. as a computer specialist. Mm-hmm. So did you ever, did you ever actually go out in the submarine and like? No. Oh. Okay. No, I was never on submarines. So I was, I was trained with some of the crew, um, but um, yeah, I was never on the submarine itself. Mm-hmm. And so, by the way, I have a fear of water, so this is sort of very interesting. <laughs> so good thing it wasn't an underwater. <laughs> yeah. But I was taking the job anyway, no matter what it was. <laughs> so did you do? Did you? Do were you sort of self-taught in computer programming? I didn't hear you. Oh, talk good about question. Very, very good question. I, um, I taught myself Fortran because my sister was studying computers, Fortran, and she had a book, and so I read the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's an excellent question because when they interviewed me, it's one of the only two jobs I've ever had where I was hired over the phone. Right? They didn't. They they didn't see me, and they didn't know who I was, and um, so. Um, the person who was interviewing me, ended up being my boss, said to me, you know, he says, uh, do you know any computer programming? Because, you know, we do COBOL here. I said, no, but I know Fortran. He says, that's the same thing. <laughs> it's not, by the way, but <laughs> but he thought it was. And the fact that I knew Fortran, that was how I got hired. And the reason I knew Fortran, back to your, your question, was that because I, I read a book. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, literally, literally self-taught that. And then I learned from being on the job. That's great. When did you transition to the NSF? Was that next? No, next was um, I went from working for the Navy to working to the for the Army hmm. um, in at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. I was at uh, the Communications Electronics Command as a operations research analyst, hmm. um, which was which was actually a really good job for me, and um, because I learned a lot, I mean, I, I got to apply all the math that I knew and I get trained in some other aspects of looking at things to the operation research perspective. So that was, that was really good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Lloyd, since we're going to have, we have a lot of students listening to this podcast and I think you bring a unique perspective because you were a civilian working in these military positions, right? Right. Can you tell us just about what that's like to be a civilian mathematician coming into the military 
What does that what does that look like? Um you know, I didn't I was it was okay for me um because there were a lot of other civilians. Um you know, the, the military is looks it's it's very different. I mean it's very different than because I've worked later, as you'll see, I've worked in the civilian side of federal government and I worked in the military. It's very different. It's just, you know, in the military things done by, by command, you know, and so it's um you know, it doesn't matter if you're right or not, but if I outrank you, you know, that's, that's sort of the deal. And so, but, you know, you, I adapted to it because, you know, this is what I did. Um, but again, you, we use math to solve problems, right? And so it, it doesn't really matter what kind of problems they are because you can apply it. Um, and even if, as I say, things are done by command, you can make an argument that to convince people that, you know, maybe you should do things this way, and you use the the arguments that you make are, are some you know based on logic and mm-hmm. mathematical thinking. So, I, and I think that um, that goes a long way. Just in, like anywhere, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're in Monmouth, New Fort Monmouth, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, Fort Monmouth, okay. New Jersey. Yeah, and so I was there um, for a few years. Um, then I moved to D.C. I was at the General Services Administration. In fact, um, that's and that's the second job that I got when I was hired over the phone. Um, and they told me that they were so they were sort of reticent in, in doing that, but they for, for some I don't and you never know who's in the pool. Right? So they said my application was much better than anybody else's, so they're mm-hmm. willing to take the chance. So they asked me, if, if, "Are you going to be in D.C. anytime? You can stop in?" And I said, "Well, no." And they said, well, "It's okay." All right. So <laughs> so. I worked for the General Services Administration as a computer specialist. I worked in the Office of Advanced Planning. So back then, um, the, the General Services Administration, and it sort of still is, was the federal government's purchaser. So if you bought anything, you have to go through GSA. So it could be pens, pencils, telecommunication systems, you know, everything had to be purchased through GSA. And so the office I worked in, um, looked at emerging technology and to see where it could be applied throughout the federal government. So I, that was that was really great because you get to see all this stuff and you actually had ideas of how to implement it. And so that was, things are more distributed now, but but that was um, good for me. And it was, then, it was in DC and then it was actually a block away from the National Science Foundation, which is where I ended up getting my next job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you were there for a long time. Ever, yeah. I, I, was, there for, I was there for 23 years. 20, I know Deanna years. knows about your time at NSF, but I'm not as familiar with it. So how about just sort of lay that out as if Deanna's not here? Okay, so a little known fact, it's not a secret, but it's a little known fact that the reason I was hired by NSF was um, to be head of their central computer system. Mm-hmm. Because of my computer background, I was... Um, I worked in Division of Information Systems, and so how I got this job is sort of beyond me because um, it was, first of all, it was a supervisory position. I had no supervisory experience. I had a lot of computer experience, but it was in computer systems that I had no background in. Um, and I had a really good first interview with a couple of branch chiefs. In fact, they they, they thought my job was really great. So maybe well, we should switch you know, my job at GSA. <laughs> And so it was a really good interview. And then the next day I got a phone call saying that 
they want me back for a second interview with their boss. And I said, okay. So I went back for an interview. And how I got this job, I don't know, because there were a couple of times, this happened more than once during the interview. She would ask me my opinion about some particular thing. And I would go on and on. I had an opinion about it. And I would go on and on about it. She says, hmm, that's really interesting because I had the exact opposite opinion. <laughs> and then she would go and tell me what her opinion was. And that happened more than once during the interview. And I said, oh, yeah, this is not going to happen. Uh-huh. And then the last thing she said to me as a living, she said, oh, did they tell you that it's down to you and one other person? And I said, oh, no, they didn't tell me that. <laughs> but And I got the job. So I got the job and I was hired there. And I worked um, in information systems for quite a long time, for about um, you know eight of those years. I, I did that. And then I was a special assistant to the, the director of information systems. And then I was head of the computer center branch. Um, and... My, my route to DMS was, was, was just so weird. Um, NSF was moving from its location in Washington, D.C., across the river to Arlington, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And the person in administrative of services who was head, of, was chief of the facilities and operations band, branch was um, part of the relocation team. In fact, he was heading up the relocation team. And they asked me to fill in beso- behind him while he was doing the relocation. Mm-hmm. I said, you must have the wrong person, right? Because I don't, you know, what do I know about facilities and operations? Well, you know, you, you'll, you'll be okay at this. Well, I ended up learning more about stuff that I had no interest in, like um, elevators and space and air conditioning and heaters. I mean, it was just like, all right, so that was all my responsibility. And in fact, um, people can either blame me or give me credit for the fact that NSF has this 15 page um, page limit on, on, on so that was me. That was my idea. In fact, the reason it was my idea was because NSF was coming out with this grant proposal guide and they put a small working group together. And I was, since I was head of facilities and operations, they had me on the team and they had a couple of, they had Judy Sunley who was in, 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 in math and they had, I had somebody from biology and they were putting this together. And one of the things they were putting together was this grant proposal guide where, and, and they wanted to say that the, the, the previous regulation said that 15 pages plus charts and graphs. Mm-hmm. You could do 15 pages plus charts and graphs. And well, you know, as a mathematician, I said, well, you know, that's not well-defined, right? I mean, because my guys who in proposal processing had to determine the 15 pages plus, because this was, a, this was before electronic, they had to determine with the 15 pages to meet compliance, right? Mm-hmm. So if you see a chart on a, is that five sevenths of a page? I mean, how do you, how do you determine, mm-hmm. you know, what, what part of that, you know, that chart, you know, is not included in the 15? So I said, I don't care what it is, just make it a number, right? Well, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what the number is, make it, make it 18, 20, and then um, the guy who was head of biology said, you know, how about 15? And I said, oh, 15 would be great, but it'll never pass. And nobody will be, the other says, now it's 15 plus. And I said, we know 15. And so, and it went through this whole clearance process and it it was approved at 15 and it's still 15. <laughs> so, so people can blame me for that. So. You've had a lifelong so, impact. 
<laughs> yeah, so far, right? <laughs> um, so then um, while I was in this position, um, so DMS, uh, actually everywhere in NSF has, has when well, they have program officers, they have permanent staff, and then they have what they call rotators generally. And rotators are usually people from universities, but not necessarily, who come and spend one, two, three, or four years at NSF and they go back. And so NSF sort of likes that mix because you have the institutional knowledge of the permanent staff, but then you have the, also the new influx of ideas from the people who rotate through. But you have to train these people constantly, right? And then you have to constantly train them because these are really smart people, but they don't know how the systems work, right? So, and since I had a computer background, you always had to train them. So they asked me if I would come and help train. And the other thing is, and people who, who deal with DMS now will not believe this, but DMS had not done panels before. Mm -hmm. um, and so I remember Joe Jenkins was a program officer and he was he had rotated. He was going back to SUNY, SUNY Buffalo and he wanted to figure out a way how he could still not be an NSF and run his program. And so they came with the idea of running a panel, but they never done that before. So they asked me to help them work with Joe to, to implement panels. So I was there. I was working with panels. I was doing training. And um, so that was on a temporary assignment to DMS. And then I extended my temporary assignment. And then Fred Wan, who was the division director at the time, was starting up the infrastructure program. And he asked me if I would stay to be um, one of the program officers for the infrastructure program. And so I did. So Gene Tiebo and I were the first two people who did infrastructure. And so that's how I got the DMS. Can you tell listeners uh, what the infrastructure program was responsible for? So at that time, it was responsible for anything that was non-disciplinary specific. So there was an algebra and number theory program, an analysis program, this probability statistics program, um, there are foundations. And so, you know, each discipline has a program, um, but then there are things that cross programs or don't fit neatly anywhere else. So the postdoc was in there, REU was in there. Um, so that's what that's what infrastructure was at the time. I know I, I have known you for a long time, Lloyd, because um, you were the program officer when we were doing the Carleton Summer Mathematics Program for Women. And um, you played a very important role in making that program happen, in my opinion. And you have been so supportive of uh, programs for supporting uh, underrepresented groups in mathematics. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about some of the programs that that you have helped support and why um, why this was important to you? You know, I, I just figure that's sort of my role is to help. I mean, I there's a lot of stuff I can't do, but I can help other people do stuff. So, mm -hmm. um, so that was to me that was that was a big issue. Um, but it wasn't just that. I mean, people make good cases as to, you know, so one of the reasons NSF has, so there are program solicitations and there are unsolicited proposals. Unsolicited proposal is something that doesn't doesn't respond to a solicitation. And that's because NSF doesn't doesn't uh, profess to have all the good ideas. So, if you, so you can submit a proposal to NSF that doesn't sort of fit neatly into one of their boxes. And so that's sort of what I had. And people made made good cases, right? They made good cases for um, 
for why this should be supported. And, you know, they made good cases to me, make good cases to reviewers. And, um, and you know, I, I just thought it was important. And I was glad that they did. I mean, I, a lot of them were internal fights. Um, I guess I can't give up too many specifics. A lot of them were internal fights, right? So, okay, so I have to say that, you know, how do you know you had any impact at all? Well, I know that in some cases, and I, I won't necessarily mention names, but uh, in some cases, if I were not there, it would not have happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and and I, and I reason I know this is because I sometimes would have to fight with my colleagues for whether something should be funded or not. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes I won, and sometimes I didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, I claimed the time I lost, I didn't. I didn't lose. Other people lost. Right? They, they <laughs> didn't have opportunities, right? So, um, you know, the Edge program was one that was. Um, the Alliance out of Iowa, that was mm-hmm. another one. Mm-hmm. Um, there are others that I'm embarrassing to get slipping my mind, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that um, at one point uh, I was looking at the AMS's programs that make a difference. And yeah. I saw a lot of those programs that I knew had had uh, come up under your uh, leadership in the infrastructure or at DMS. Yeah, so you know, um, so when after I, I left NSF, I went to the I was at the University of Nevada Reno, but I, but NSF kept me on for a year after as a transition, and so um, I remember I was sitting at my desk at UNR and I was looking at um, whatever year that was. The AMS had come out with these programs that make a difference, and I said, "Oh, wait a minute, I funded those programs." <laughs> let me let me go back and look and see what that. And I went back, you know, the year before. Wait a minute, I funded both of those programs, and then because there's only two of them every year, I went back. Wait, I funded those other two programs too. And I went back, like, like wait a minute, I funded those programs. And so I so DMS has this program officer Elliot. This is this DMS prog that you know you, you hit all program officers. And so I wrote, and I was reading this, and I wrote something. I said. Normally, modesty would prevent me from sending this email message, but I just want to point out that, that you know, I, I was looking at this list, and, and and some of the people who were there knew, and some of the people who were there were, were also supportive of me, and they, they also knew that I had to fight to get some of those programs through, and they said, yeah, you know, people, a lot of people don't realize that. I said, yeah, I know, and so, so I'm glad. I mean, it's not, it was a matter of me, whether I was right or not, it was just that I was able to help people make an impact. So I, I thought that was good. Well, it was appreciated, let me tell you. <laughs> and for listeners who want to know more about Edge and Alliance, there's a chapter on each one of them in the volume that sort of goes along with this podcast called Count Me in Community and Belonging Mathematics, as well as some other programs that have Lloyd's fingerprints on them too. <laughs> okay, so one point I wanted to make was Throughout all of these different experiences you've had, I'm hearing excellence. So you went from one position to the other. And even though they sound like they changed a lot, what stayed the same was your excellence. Because otherwise, for example, when you were at the NSF, they wouldn't have continued to move you in these various positions and put you in charge of something that you quote unquote knew nothing about. So you have a template for excellence. And I'm going to guess you face some challenges along the way. So I, what we'd like you to do is talk about a challenge and some practical ways that you faced it. Um, so one of the challenges, actually, the reason I got to DMS was because when, when I was in that job in administrative services, I sort of had a boss um, 
let's just say that he and I did not see eye to eye, right? And um, for a number of reasons. And in fact, in fact, it, it was pretty bad in that he would spend at least an hour a day, and this is not an exaggeration, at least an hour a day with me in his office telling me how stupid I was. Oh. Right? Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I, I, I sort of, I know I'm not stupid. Okay, so <laughs> um, that's, uh, you know, that's okay. I'm, I, I sort of know that. In fact, I, I confronted him once and I said, you know, I said, there were four categories that we can talk about. We can talk about things that I do right and we can do things that I do wrong. And we can talk about things that you do right. And we can talk about things that you do wrong. And there are things, these are not empty sets, but there are things in all four of these categories. Mm -hmm. But if we spend all the time talking about one of them, there's sort of an imbalance, right? I mean, we, it seems like that's the only one and the others don't exist, mm -hmm. right? And his response to me was, you're not going to change me. I'm too old. I wasn't trying to change. I was just trying to, <laughs> right? So... Um, I remember the person who was his boss actually was, he used to be my boss in the information system. So she moved up and it was because of her that I got into this other position. Um, and she wanted to meet with me to find out how things were going. And I'm going, oh no, this is a really tough situation. This is, you know, I might get a rat out on the guy, you know, because I can either I can either lie or I can rat out, <laughs> rat him out. Right? So how am I going to approach this? Um, and then she, when I went off, and she said, "Well, well, how are you doing?" And I said, "I'm miserable." And then I was going to think, "How am I going to follow this up?" But her response to me was, "I thought so." Yeah. All right, and so I didn't have to say anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, how did she know? I don't know. I don't know. But she, but she wanted to have this meeting with me, and so I, so I don't know how she knew. But she said she knew. And so that was a, relief, a surprise to me, and it was a relief because now I didn't have to go explain. I didn't even tell her why because you know she knew. So her deputy um, was the one who told me. He said, you know, you know, he knew I was he knew I was in this miserable situation, and he talked about why. Um, how about going to DMS? I went to DMS. And mm -hmm. I said, oh, this is a very bad attitude on my part. I said, no, they don't want me at DMS. Because he said, well, you don't know that. And I said, mm -hmm. I said, you're right. He says, I don't know they do either. I haven't talked to anybody. He said, but you don't know that they don't. Mm -hmm. So I said, I said, you're right. So he said, can I talk to, uh, Judy Sunley at the time was, was the associate for math and physical sciences, which is where DMS resides. And so he, he talked to the you know, her boss and he his boss talked to her and he talked to Fred Juan, who was division director. And that's when they decided to have me come over temporarily to do those things that I mentioned before. And then do those things. So that was uh, another one of those things where if I hadn't really been in that really bad situation, I never would have gotten to do this. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of making lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> really. It also sounds like you sort of had someone looking out for you, kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that a lot, you know, <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, 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 you know, people don't necessarily appreciate the fact that things that other people do, and, you know, good intentions are not good intentions, it doesn't really matter, you know, it's just that, um, you know, people can not care about, you know, you know, people think that maybe hating you is really bad, but not caring about you at all, I think might, might even be worse, right, mm -hmm. so, um, but, you know, you talked about excellence, so, so um, after I left 
uh, UNR is at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. And I had a job, I worked in uh, sponsored programs. And then I applied for a job in contracts and grants, which people in research administration never do. You don't cross from one to the other. And, and the guy who hired me said to me, one of the reasons he hired me is because he knew my history. And this was his claim, not mine, that I've been successful at everything that I've done. And I said, well, mm -hmm. first of all, not true. But second of all, I said to him, I said, but Bill, this could be the first one. You, know, you don't know <laughs> that I can bomb this. You, know, you can't keep the streak alive forever. You know, even though the streak wasn't you know, real. I said, but, he, but he took the chance. Um, in what aspects of your life are you still a student? Everything. <laughs> Everything. Everything and from everybody. Right? I think you can learn just from, you know, I, maybe that's not a good thing to say these days, but, you know, there was this... Um, think the Lone Ranger, he would leave, you know, he would leave the silver bullet. And, you know, who was that masked man? You know, and it's, it's sort of, I've had these people in my life that just sort of have been there, you know, you know, and they're gone and they're there and then they're gone. And they're like, who was that masked man? You know, they did something that had huge impact and they're gone. You know, like, mm -hmm. like some of the people I talk about, I don't even remember their names, you know, I, there, there's, and this happens to me, not just in professionally, but personally, these people come and they do stuff you know, anonymously, and they're gone, mm -hmm. you know? And sometimes I can't even thank them because they're gone. I don't even know who they are. They're gone. <laughs> you know, are you a grateful, for, a grateful person? No, 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 you're gone. I don't know who you are. So sort of turning the corner a tiny bit, even, I know you're retired now, but when life, or even now, maybe your schedule is really full, but when life is really full for you, how did you manage to prioritize between all the competing demands? Yeah, so that's a um, that's a tough one because you know um, when I was at when I was at the University of Reno, I, I I had this really checkered you know history. I was an HR person. Right? So one of the things I did was human resources, and one of the, so I have a lot of theories about about human resources. And one of them is that I could never you know interviews have always thrown me because I can't answer the questions right. And the and the question one of the questions they ask on job interviews is um, it's a similar thing. And I've been on panels where I've asked this, you know, you know how are you organized? Mm -hmm. and, and I can't give an answer to that question because I'm thinking, how are you not organized? I mean, how do you get things done if you, if you, you are? And so if I say something like that, people say, well, that's just a bogus answer. Um, he's probably really not, he's probably really disorganized and doesn't want to fess up to it. And I, you know, but I think about back to my experiences in operations research analysts, I think, there are, there are life incorporated things that I learned there that I just do automatically, you know, mm -hmm. things like critical path and then, you know, you know, and, and mini max and probability distribution. And you know, it's just like natural, you know, I just, you know, I'm not a list maker. Um, I just get this stuff done. You know, you know, you know, my objective is to move the stuff from me to somebody else. Right. So yes, that's, that's the critical. I don't want to be the holdup. Right. Uh -huh. So right. to figure out the best way if something comes to me, how do I get it so that I'm not holding up other people, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's just sort of this hybrid of, you know, and stuff comes in, you know, you know, sort of a Poisson distribution. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't come in um, in, in an orderly way. And it doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't go out in an orderly way, right? And so you've got to figure out, okay, you know, well, if I do this at this time, you know, well, how does it impact all these other things? And it's just, you know, I just sort of, 
naturally do it. And things are constantly changing. You know, I don't, I don't really drop the ball that much. So I can't, but if I ever drop, like if I'm late, oh, that's horrible for me. I'm just late. You know, I just, I don't, <laughs> I mean, late in like showing up or late in something due by a certain date, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, and so this goes back to being my childhood. Okay, so when I was in school, you'd get homework on Monday and it's due on Tuesday. You get homework on Tuesday, it's due on Wednesday. And so that's fine. Then you get homework on Friday and it's due on Monday. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, so I figure it's due on Monday. I can wait and I wait and wait. And then so, and then it becomes Sunday night and I'm scrambling to get the stuff done. And I had a horrible weekend because I was thinking about all the stuff that I didn't get done. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, why don't you just pretend that it's due on Saturday? You know, you did it. It's okay. Every other day is fine. You can do that. Why don't you pretend? Well, it's, you know, it's easier. It's not so easy to fool yourself when you know what the answer is. <laughs> so, but, so I think part of that, part of the frustration of just, it seemed like a complete waste of time to not get stuff done because it, it I didn't, it didn't buy me anything. It just made my life miserable. So I just, mm-hmm. I didn't want to be miserable. So I mm-hmm. figured out how do, how do I get things to where things aren't hanging over my head? <laughs> so. Can you tell us about a place or experience in your life where you felt like you really belonged or a place or experience where you were uncomfortable and you didn't feel like you belonged? I'm pretty much always uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um. Hmm. Yeah, I am. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, so if if so, let me, let me say say that there are two. Either, there are two types of feeling uncomfortable. I want to talk mm-hmm. about. Um, one is when you're doing things outside of your comfort zone, and I'll call that the good uncomfortable. Um, you know, I talked about playing hockey when I first started skating. Uh, one of the things they teach you how to do is to, is how to fall and how to get up when you fall mm-hmm. because it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's going to happen. And so I've always been amused um, at people you know, who they go ice skating. So how, how, was, how was it? Oh, it was good. I didn't fall. Oh, well, if you didn't fall, you probably weren't doing it. I mean, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Right. So it's the, the whole idea of being outside of your comfort zone. Uh-huh. It's uncomfortable. But that to me, that's how you grow. Right, mm-hmm. right. So I call that the, I'll call that the good. Um, I'm being uncomfortable. Then I, I was call it the bad being uncomfortable is where, you know, people make you feel like you shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in in my situations, I'm usually one of the only, and you can fill in the blank. You know, I'm, I'm only of something, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's not a natural tendency for me to feel comfortable. Um, so I try not to think about it. Of course, that's easier to do sometimes than others. And there, there are some situations where people have gone. I don't think people, I, I have not encountered a situation that I know where people have done that intentionally. Um, mm-hmm. There have been intentional attempts to make me feel like I do belong. Right. So, um, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty, I don't know. That seems like a horrible way to go through life. You know, always being uncomfortable. <laughs> But, you know, again, there's, there's, there are positive things that come out of it. But I'm, I'm really surprised by that, that you have spent so much of your life helping others find communities where they feel comfortable and where they feel like they belong. Um, have you ever worked on finding that community for yourself? 
I haven't worked on it, but there are there are a couple of communities um, where I said people have made, gone out of their way. One is my church, mm-hmm. and the other is my hockey team. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In, in both cases, um, I mean, they do things to me that I wouldn't do. I mean, you know, so it's like, um, you know, you know the, so the interesting thing about my hockey team is that I was asked to play on this team, right? Which And the amazing thing about being asked to play on this team is that they've actually seen me play, you know? And they asked me anyway. Right? <laughs> so, and it's not because of my hockey skills, right? It's because, you know, I, for some reason they like me being around, you know? They, they, so it, it's sort of, that's interesting. So we have one more official question before we go okay. to the lightning round. Um, which okay. you've already hinted at the answer. Well, what do you do to take care of Lloyd? What do I do? Um, I play chess. I play hockey. I eat ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite flavor? No, it's amazing. I was I was asked this question once, and I go like, "Favorite? I got a favorite lot, lots of things, right?" But ice cream? No, I don't have a favorite flavor. There are too many ties, you know. Like, there are things I don't like, but like, wow, he's right. I couldn't. I I was surprised at the fact that I didn't have a favorite ice cream flavor. Okay, so for our quick fire questions, the first one is fill in the blank, and all the rest are regular questions. Okay. You ready? Sure. So the fr- <laughs> <laughs> You could not have been more unenthusiastic. <laughs> Let me just try that again. Lloyd, are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. So the first one, fill in the blank. Mathematics is? Universal. Mm, mm-hmm. Good. Where's a place that you really love and enjoy? Munich, Germany. Mm. Tell us why. Um, pastry. <laughs> so I find it interesting that times I've been in Munich, I've eaten lots of pastry and I've lost weight. That's, I think that's great. That, I, 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 think it's I, I think it's because I walk more than I do. Mm-hmm. So does that mean at the very beginning, you were telling us one of your four possible majors was German. Yeah. Does that mean you've maintained the language this whole time? I, I well, well, Maintain, I don't know if that's a good word because I don't know if I maintain English, but um, I, I still I actually study German on a daily basis now. Um, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not very good at it. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I play, I do these, I'm not very good at hockey. I'm not very good at chess. I'm not very good at, and I've been doing all these things for a very long time. I'm not very good at any of them, right? So when people ask me, how long have you been doing it? I'm like, oh, embarrassing. You know, I'll tell you the answer, but. <laughs> <laughs> what sound reminds you of home? What sound? Doorbell. Hmm, why is that? I don't know. I think about um, growing up and hearing doorbells ring and hmm. being at home. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Well, Lloyd, we really enjoyed our time with you. It's very nice for you to take time out to, to join our podcast. Thank you. I, Thank you. Appreciate it. My subtitle for this is going to be a template for excellence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much. Um, and we'll see you later. Okay. Thank you.
That was really fun talking to Lloyd. He has such a long, uh, interesting history of jobs that he's worked and careers that he's had in mathematics. What did you take out of our interview, Della? Well, he basically lived what he discovered in college when he was weighing his options between chemistry, German, math, and physics, and he felt like math had a lot of opportunity. And he really lived that out in his life with excellence being the common theme as he moved from one position to another. Mm-hmm. I also loved how we learned about uh, professors saw something in him and identified it. Mm-hmm. He really took mm-hmm. that in. And I love the fact that his dad wanted him to be an engineer and he had to separate his sort of dad's aspirations and his own and um, that he went to a high school where the mascot was an engineer. I just got a real kick out of that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a, a great conversation. I'm glad we did that. So thanks for joining us. We're continuing to count you in. Until next time, this is Della and Deanna. So long. Count Me In with Dell Indiana is produced by the talented Sam Dunnewald. Music is by Casey Fenster and the podcast image is by Victoria Robinson.